Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a superhero. Oh, yeah. Go on. Yeah, because today's guest is probably best known for being a leading actor in numerous sci-fi sort of TV series and films and but not 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 exclusively but there is sci-fi as a theme and it got me thinking about superheroes but he is also somebody that I've always wanted to meet because I think he is a bit of a hero to you and me because of what he has done not only through acting and through his creative endeavors and contributions to the world but also because of his humanity and his integrity and their words that I associate a lot with him because I think he's incredibly intelligent, incredibly well sort of educated in a way. Just the language he uses when he communicates is very impressive. But also he came out as a kind of very well-known actor about 10 or 11 years ago. And I actually really remember that moment when he did go public about being gay, uh, just being very significant because there were very few actors at that time, and even now really, who are openly gay. And I know it shouldn't just be the thing we talk about, but it is something significant that um, resonated a lot with me back when it happened. And also with yourself, Russell, being an openly gay actor, I do think it's really important to... um, you know, just to mention that. But you two have been collaborating recently in America, and I stupidly haven't been over there, but um, I know you've been having an amazing time. And I think you've even been sharing scenes in the new series of American Horror Story. Correct. Which um, is going to be airing either very soon, or by the time this episode is out, I think it will be aired. That's so right. hopefully those scenes might even be visible for the listeners to uh, to see. But Anyway, we would like to welcome your new friend and uh, my new friend after this episode. <laughs> you hope. You hope, yeah. Zachary, Zachary Quinto. Hi, Zachary. Russell, you're gay? <laughs> no, no. Oh, no. my God. Oh, now I find out. Now I find out. Block him. Um, hi, everybody. Hi. Happy where- to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where are you, Zachary? I'm in I'm uh, in in the next room. From you. <laughs> where though? Whereabouts in the world? We're in we're in Fire Island, aren't we? We're in Fire Island, uh, the pines of Fire Island. Working. Uh, I just returned uh, moments ago from from New York City, uh, and we have a few more days of, of filming out here, which has been delightful, right? It's been heaven, absolute heaven. Yeah, I'm I'm in 
literally the room next to you but we have to record this <laughs> through three separate channels so i'm just seeing you that. on the balcony really through the window yeah it's really no weird way. yeah i moved inside because it was getting a little windy but i'm uh i'm right I'll see you in a few moments after we're done. <laughs> yeah, we go for a swim. Yes, yeah, so no, mm. we, we are we are working on uh, American Horror Story season eleven at the minute, and we're near completion. And by the time this episode's out, it will be on television, which is kind of daunting uh, and exciting at the same time. Right? How do you feel about it? I am entirely undaunted by it, simply because. As I've gotten older, I really have gotten more consistent about just letting go, letting things go after I'm done with them. So I don't have any real attachment to where it goes after that. Honestly, I, I only watch things if I have to, which I usually have to on some level or another. I think I'll watch this because of everybody else on it, actually, um, because I'm excited to see what everybody's been up to. And, um, and so, and I, and I have a little bit of a, of a, more supporting role on this season so i don't have to spend like the entire time with myself um but yeah i don't feel i feel like i don't know i used to be much more attached to what happens with things after i'm done with them but anymore it's like i want to have a good time making work i want to make good work and then how people respond to it or where it goes after i make it is really not has nothing to do with me i think that's kind of the sweet spot really you want as an actor i think i have Mm. sometimes i'm able to achieve that and other times i'm not I think, yeah, as I'm getting older, especially as well, I'm able to let stuff go and just... And I've got a few years on you, Russell. Not that many, Quinny. Not many. No, no, I'm not saying many. I'm just saying a few. <laughs> and Zach, you also do a lot of producing, don't you? I do have a production company, yes. I've had the production company in various iterations since 2008, actually. Um, and we originally started by producing a lot of film. Uh, and now... For various reasons, we are producing more television, but um, but yeah, I've been I've been producing for a while. So is that a different process then? Is if you're producing completely a, different skill set? Yeah, absolutely, and do you yeah. care care in a different way? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's a different kind of contribution. I'm involved in projects from a much earlier phase of their development as a producer, and essentially, I see my role as a producer as creating an environment that incentivizes everybody to do the best work that they can possibly do and having as good a time as they possibly can have doing it. Um, So for me, it's really about supporting oftentimes a filmmaker's vision or a writer's vision or, you know, making the process as streamlined as I can for somebody um, through casting and through, you know, building out departments with people that are both sane and easy to collaborate with. Collaboration is a huge cornerstone of my process as a producer. And yes, I mean, obviously I want the projects that I produce to do well. And and maybe sometimes there's more at stake for me in that circumstance because I've been a part of developing and raising the money, usually in an independent film. Um, So if it does well, then everybody benefits. But again, there's only so much I can do to ensure that. You know, I've noticed a lot with actor friends of mine, they're now starting to write or try and direct or be involved behind the camera more than ever before, actually. And was that one of the reasons why you first got into wanting to produce shows? Was it a way of finding roles for yourself, you know, like writing roles for yourself or or, or at least maybe finding stories that you thought needed to have more presence in the world? 
Less so the first one, more the second one, I would say. I'm less concerned with creating acting opportunities for myself than I am in being a part of the kinds of stories that I'm going to put out in the world. So um, that's been a real motivator for me. Sometimes I'm in the things that I produce, but not all the time. We're certainly producing more stuff that I'm not attached to as an actor than we're producing stuff that I am. And where do uh, the visual arts fit into your life then? Hanging out with you the last three months, you are an incredibly visual person and doing deep dives on you as research today there's an architectural digest shoot that comes up especially and it gives uh, an audience the opportunity to walk around your aesthetic to walk around your world and you are incredibly um design orientated and you do have an absolute passion for the arts mm. is that something that you've mm. always had and incorporated into your life um, design, I would say, yes, my mom was really interested in design and how things looked and the presentation of space. And, uh, and I, I think I picked that up from her, uh, visual art evolved a little bit more organically over time. And when I arrived at a place in my life where I had my own space to create, to design and to, um, to, be an extension of myself and my personality, then I realized the connection between that and how visual art can be a part of that. And then of course, uh, you know, when I got into a place in my life where I had the resources to contribute to that aspect of, of my experience, then, then I, I, I opened up to it a lot more, but it's definitely evolved. I've become more and more interested and more and more involved in collecting art and um, pursuing um, artists and responding, you know, to work that I like by, by buying it. Can you remember the first exhibition you went to? Because you're born and bred in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And one of the mm -hmm. big tourist attractions of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is the Andy Warhol Museum. But there's mm -hmm. also the Carnegie Museum of Art. There's a, a Frick collection there. There's the Mattress Factory, which is a really important contemporary museum there. Having all them resources growing up, were these things that you would go and visit willingly or were they kind of, was you experiencing them through school being forced upon on day trips? Mm -hmm. I was enrolled in an art class that took place at the Carnegie museum. Uh, I used to go to the Carnegie museum a lot as a kid. I loved that place, both the, the museum of art and the museum of natural history, which are connected in the same complex. Um, I used to love to go there and look at art and, I have vivid memories as a child of spending quite a bit of time there. Also, uh, the art class that I was enrolled in every Saturday took place more in the Museum of Natural History, but uh, but it was an art class, so it was about you know learning you know very fundamental rudimentary techniques. Uh, but I loved it. I loved going there. I loved to have, you know when, when my parents would take me to the to the museum. Um, the Warhol Museum didn't come along until a bit later. Um, I think I was a teenager. I don't remember when exactly they opened the Andy Warhol Museum, but it was definitely like, it wasn't there from my birth. Like that was something that came in my adolescence, I think. Um, but I was always really fascinated with Andy Warhol because, you know, uh, he grew up, that's where he went to Carnegie Mellon, which is where I went to college. And um, so I was always really fascinated by him. And when the museum opened, I spent a lot of time there. I loved not only the artwork and the comprehensive nature of the collection, the permanent collection, but also all of the ephemera 
and the correspondence and the things about the artist himself. Uh, I was really fascinated by the factory and Velvet Underground and that kind of world. Um, and so I, I, I leaned into all of that and would spend time there as well. Um, the Mattress Factory is the first place I ever saw James Terrell installation. Oh, cool. um, there were some amazing things there as a kid that like, you know, I was introduced to as a result of my um, my upbringing. And Pittsburgh is a really, people have a kind of misconception of the city as this mm, a grittier, blue collar kind of working class town, which it certainly was during the Industrial Revolution. But the other thing that came out of that was the robber barons and the, you know, the industrialists like uh, Andrew Carnegie and the Mellons and the Fricks and all the people whose uh, institutional money remains in the city. Uh, there's a lot of amazing um, uh, uh, attributions of that, of those funds to the city, to culture. And I think that's a huge part of the reason that Pittsburgh um, isn't just one thing. It's actually a, a really much more interesting place than people give it credit for being. Mm. And the arts are a big part of that. So I did grow up with exposure to all of that. And I wouldn't say that it's a conscious link to like my current relationship to art, but it's certainly an unconscious part of my foundation as a person. Definitely. And I heard that your dad, when you were a young kid, he was also, he was a hairdresser, but he was also mm -hmm. very into different arts or visual arts and, mm -hmm. and kind mm -hmm. of inspired you to, 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 to sort of consider it. He was a real Renaissance man, my dad. He was, uh, he was a musician and a photographer and a visual artist. And uh, he was incredibly talented, um, really beloved, really, really magnanimous guy, um, very social, very accessible person. Um, and the arts were a huge part of his makeup, who, who, who he was as a person. And then my mom, uh, you know, the two of them, she was a bit of an eclectic and a bit of a... Um, you know, an aesthete as it were. Yeah. They were very stylish, fun kind of, they would, he would play the guitar and she would sing. They were kind of hippies without being hippies. Uh, they were very cool. What kind parents. of photographs did he take? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, he did tons of stuff. I mean, uh, he did a lot of landscapes. Um, we would spend the summers traveling to new England and he would do a lot of photos up there during the summer, took a lot of family photos, candid family photos, you know, um, but they always had a, a creative or artistic, uh, perspective sensibility. So there was like a whole wall in my house that were photos that my dad took of our family, of my brother and me and my mom and all black and white, all framed, uh, there were drawings that he had done over the years that were framed and hung around the house. Like he was definitely a, an artistic person. Yeah. He was a, he was a pretty significant influence, I think on me in in the very formative years of my life, he sadly passed away when I was really young. I was seven. So I didn't have a chance to cultivate a relationship with him into my um, evolution as a person or an artist myself. But uh, I know it's a fundamental part of who I am. Does it feel quite typical for, families in Pittsburgh to use the museums as places that they take their kids I mean it sounds like your parents incredibly cultured so it felt like a given but is there a community within Pittsburgh that really are proud of their institutions or again is it the sort of thing that it feels uh exclusive in some ways that's a great question Russ I don't know uh I only know what my experience was um 
I guess I would say in terms of children, you know, Pittsburgh, it's surprising in a lot of ways as a city. And one of the ways is that it does really create opportunities and outlets for kids who are interested in different expressions of creativity. Um, the performing arts have, uh, you know, a pretty incredible um, youth directed community um, in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and I guess the same would be true for the visual arts. I think because I gravitated to the performing arts as a young person, there was no shortage of places for me to go to learn and, and hone my skills or, you know, discover whether or not I had skills, I guess, at an early age. But I think the same would be true of, of the visual arts. I just don't know if it's like a place that families go. There was a children's museum, which was very much a place that families would go. That was pretty cool. I love the Children's Museum as well growing up. So what do you look at now when it comes to collecting and how have you seen your own evolution of collecting change? What was the first thing that you acquired for yourself? Uh, the very first piece I acquired was a photograph um, by an artist called Pablo Zuleta Zar, who is Chilean and he lives in, or he lived, when I met him, he lived in Berlin because one of my dear friends from college moved to Berlin in the early 2000s. And I went to visit him around about 2007 and, uh, and met Pablo and learned about Pablo's work. Um, and I bought a piece from him, uh, which still hangs in my apartment. Uh, it's a pretty big format photo. And, it, and what he does essentially is he sets up a, a camera on a street corner and sets a time-lapse um, and takes all these pictures throughout the day. And then he removes, like, I don't know how to describe it, but he basically, it's, a, it's grids. It's these rectangles in these grids. And each rectangle has, uh, there's a color theme to each piece. And each rectangle then has images of people who fulfill the requirements of the color story of the piece as a whole. So, in each uh, rectangle, there might be people, only photographs of people wearing white jackets with black backpacks. And then below that might be photographs of only people wearing white jackets. And then below that, only people wearing blue jackets. And so if the color story is the piece that I have, the color story is like blue and green, then each rectangle is comprised of people from that time-lapse photograph that fulfill that little segment of the larger color story that he wants to tell. I don't know if that's explaining it in any way that people could um, identify what I'm talking no, about. No, it sounds like a social experiment. Sounds like a yeah. quota. It's like, quite beautiful yeah. and quite interesting. And, uh, and that's the first piece I bought. And well, can, um, you, can you repeat his name? Because I don't think I know his work. His name is Pablo Zuleta Zar, Z-U-L-E-T-A-Z-A-H-R. Okay, great. Um, so that, we'll pictures and, uh, on and when you bought that, Zach, yeah. was that something that you were... Yeah conscious of the price of being expensive at the time or something that you knew that that was felt comfortable for you because a lot of people when they first buy their first piece of art it's daunting to part with that much money for an object in some ways I was so green and so naive I mean it was literally me being like hey I really like your work like I'd love to buy a piece like how much is it and him being like it's this much and being like really and him being like yeah and me being like mm, okay <laughs> I mean, that was really it honestly there was no did you get a discount there was no 
I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, it was certainly more than I'd ever spent on, on art exactly, before, yeah. but it wasn't like, it wasn't something that I felt like I can't do this. And I felt like I'm investing in somebody who is a friend of my friend who I got to know. And this actually, for me, um, became a cornerstone of my relationship to art. I love to meet the artists that I'm, that I'm uh, going to, you know, purchase. Like I, I love to learn from them directly about what it is that they're making, why they're making it, what it means to whatever extent they feel comfortable um, sharing that. Um, so I think, I think maybe in a small way coming to it um, through that personal connection to the work itself and the person who made the work mm. informed how I move into like later stages of my experience as a, you know, mind you, a very, sort of, I would consider myself a very, like, fledgling collector, you know, I mean, I have over, you know, I have, yeah, a couple dozen pieces, of course, but like, I'm not like, I don't have like, a art store, like, I don't, I'm, you know, Russ, you and I talked about your obsession. <laughs> I was gonna like, say, it's know, not like Russell with his crazy amount It's of not stories. like Russell. It's not like Russell. <laughs> you know, so with this Pablo, day, you know, Pablo's work, I'm just looking at it now. Um, were you, do you think you were drawn to it because of the stories behind all these people as well? Because it's really interesting looking at them. There's so many different figures and I guess you 100%. could project into what their day was or what their character 100%. was. 100%. Where the, I mean, I love that idea that like, you know, it's about, I, I just, I love it compositionally. Mm. I love the order of it. I love that there are these, you know, very specific uh, rows and columns, but then within that, are these people, each of whom has a story, each of whom is on their way from somewhere to somewhere. Each of them is serving something within themselves. There's a, a, a freedom to the movement, the randomness of where they end up in that rectangle, mm. how that then, you know, it's, it's individual, it's micro to macro. And I love that. I love the juxtaposition mm. between the order and the flow, you know, the specificity of um, the edges of the rectangles and the uh, randomness and the um, the freedom of the forms of the people and what they have on and what they're carrying. And that's something that also, I think, recurs in my relationship to work that I collect. And how many of the works you have then? Have you had a relationship where you've met the artists themselves before acquiring the work or after acquiring the work? Have there been many examples of that within your collection? When I really step back and think about it, like just about just over half oh wow yeah what? i didn't I, I meant to when i was home this weekend i meant to like walk through my apartment and like, count the number you know like do a little like have a little some facts for you guys about how many pieces i have i didn't do it but you know it's 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 more than 17 and less than 25 pieces and what's been the most exciting like your top three artists that you've been able to hang out with or connect with and then have their work well, I told you this story, yeah. Russell. I mean, I, I think the piece that I'm fondest of or the piece that I feel the most connected to is a painting by a Japanese artist named Izumi Kato. Uh, I learned about Izumi's work when I was in Hong Kong. Uh, I was there with uh, doing, a, I was there for working with somebody and this person that I was working with took me to uh, a gallery in Hong Kong. And I forget the artist who, whose exhibition was being shown at the gallery, but we, we were introduced to a gallerist and they took us all around 
the exhibition and then they took us into this back room this consultation room and they were doing something on a computer and we were sitting at this couch and in front of the couch was this coffee table uh and on the coffee table was this tiny frame maybe like a a, a five by seven uh picture frame and inside the picture frame were these two little figures that were drawn in what appeared to be colored pencils to me or something and they just completely absorbed me. I mean, they just completely drew me in and I, and the gallerist came back and I said, you know, what is this? And they said, Oh, that's uh, another artist we represent Indozumi Kato. And then they showed me other work of his and I just became completely enamored of him from the beginning. And, uh, and I started to uh, really just like look him up and follow him and sort of see what he was doing. And um, I became increasingly interested in the work uh, over the course of the next year and a half um, I would sort of check up on him, up on him online. And, um, and eventually after about a year and a half, I said, you know, I think I'm ready to invest in one of his pieces. So I emailed that gallerist in Hong Kong and I said, how would I go about this? Uh, and the gallerist responded the next day and said, uh, your timing is incredible. He's about to have his first ever U S show at our gallery in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, and I thought, okay, like this is obviously, you know, uh, this decision is being supported by, something larger than myself. And so I, 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 the date was like such and such of an opening. And I, and I went up to the gallery, I think it was like 10 days before that, just to introduce myself to somebody and say, look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the show. And the day I went to the gallery, I went to open the doors and they were locked and I like looked in and there were people moving around and somebody saw me peering in the door and they came to the door and unlocked it and said, can I help you? And I said, Oh yeah, I'm here to talk to somebody about, the Izumi Kato show. And the guy said, uh, Oh, well, we're hanging the show right now. He's actually here. Come in. And so they invited me into the gallery no and all the pieces were leaning up against the walls mm. where they would eventually hang. And I got to walk around the show. I got to meet Izumi. I got to talk to him. Um, I got to talk to the gallerist and I essentially got to choose the piece I wanted from, uh, from the entirety of the show before it was even on the walls. Um, and so that piece was, uh, probably the most sort of like exhilarating thing. Cause it was like, it was me making a decision that then was supported by so many random mm. circumstances that, you know, I felt really like this connection that I had to the work was incredibly authentic to the point that like all these things lined up for me to be able to spend time with him. And then I got to go to the opening. I got to go to, you know, his artist's reception dinner afterwards and, and so that was pretty amazing. What's he like? What was he like? Well, um, English is not his first language. And so I was speaking to him through a translator. Um, he was very, you know, his nature was very humble. He was very uh, generous to me. Uh, he had a kind of a very Japanese restraint, but also warmth. I love Japan and I love um, the culture and the civilization of Japan. And so I thought he embodied that quite a bit. And he works in this very interesting way as well, which kind of aligns with what we were just talking about with um, Pablo, because his work is more figurative, but very, um, very sort of organic figurative. Like it's not, um, it's not photographic representation by any stretch of the imagination. He creates these, and, and the work is, by the way, it's a huge, I think it's like an, it's, it's a big piece. It's like, 
it's like five feet or six feet tall by like four feet wide. It's a big piece. It takes up a, a lot of space in my apartment and it's not for everybody. Like it's definitely people are like, whoa, that's the words have been unsettling, creepy. There's a kind of unflinching organic nature to the work that I really responded to, but that I think it, it comes, it, it reminds me of, some like deep spiritual work that I've done in my life. And, mm. uh, and that's why I got it. But I don't think that it res- resonates for everybody in the same way. But he does this really interesting thing where his backgrounds are all painted incredibly precisely. Uh, the way that he layers the paint on the canvas, the tools that he uses to create points and edges and the depth of the black color that he uses against this kind of gray. It's all very, very precise and then the figures that he paints he paints with his fingers and so there's a kind of movement and a kind of you know uh the 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 juxtaposition again from the precision of the background and the flow or the organic form of the figure itself relates in a way to the same thing that i responded to in pablo's work but that was photography and this is painting and they're entirely different, but it's it's a similar theme, I would say. Does your Izumi Kato work um, involve sculpture as well? Because I know that he does installations and has sculptural elements. He does elements. amazing sculptures, yeah. uh, actually. Uh, sometimes they're combined of... as well. You can have like the two elements in one work, I think. Yes, and I and you can have the two elements in one work where you can have, you know, there was a while after I bought the painting where the gallery, the guy that I was working with at the gallery was like, you should also get a sculpture. Mm. I have less sculpture in my collection but but his sculptures are phenomenal they're really amazing i just don't have the kind of space that's really conducive to the size of sculptures that Mm. he offers did you get the little drawing you saw no that wasn't for sale that was just a gallery thing no but it's he did send me these two little plastic sculptures that he made that are in a plant that i have that just like are perched in there and like looking at my room so i have a little sculpture little too many sculptures of his but his, his work is very much about consciousness and spirituality and psychology there's a, there's a psychology and also a use of color to kind of make you feel as a viewer those kind of subconscious feelings i mm. think do you, do you think you're drawn to works because of that kind of like subconscious like- well i was definitely drawn to that work because of it mm. uh it, it definitely I discovered it at a time when I had just come back from South America and I had been on a retreat there for a number of weeks and there was something about the work that really uh, evoked in me a sense of the kind of deep dive that I had just been doing emotionally and spiritually and psychologically and uh, and yes I think you know the piece that I have is really this being this this figure kind of emerging from something down below and uh and so i do think that i i responded to that in in that particular work i I wouldn't say that's always the case um but that was the case um in that in that instance for sure do you make work do you paint or draw or Mm -mm. never Mm -mm. Mm -mm. never wanted I, i mean like uh uh, I mean, I, I've done I've done it in my like in my journals and like I bust out some watercolors every now and again and sort of play around. <laughs> you bust out some watercolors. That isn't a thing that people just Sorry, bust that's out. Not, that's not like everyone doesn't do that. I, I don't just bust out <laughs> yeah, watercolors. I just bust out some watercolors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I'm not, 
Um, I don't know. Just like uh, it's more abstract, much more abstract. I'm not a. I can't. My brother's a very talented visual artist uh, who who can who can really like. He's really good, uh, you know, figuratively drawing, capturing things. Like he's excellent visual artist. I don't possess that innate ability. I don't. I can't like look at something and figure out how to draw it. That's not something I can do. So. If I do bust out the watercolors, it's much more about a abstract exploration of like my emotional life or something that I want to capture. But that's more why I ask. Or, that's why I ask if you make yeah. the art because it feels like that's something that you're really drawn to in the art that you're looking at. But also your your journey through life is something that you're always soul searching and working stuff out. Yeah. And that sort of exhaustively. thing, I'm sure. But I'm that that oh, yeah. creativity <laughs> through the watercolor, busting out your watercolors, feels like it's something that would release or allow you to express yeah. something when words aren't enough, which is what sure. art is. I think that's probably true. I don't do it as much as I used to. I did it much more when I was younger. Um, but uh, I think that's an accurate assessment. I do think uh, I, I tend to be such um, an intellectual person and I, and I can kind of flip up into my head and find words for things because words are something that do come very naturally to me. But I do think there are aspects of my psychological or emotional uh, excavation through life, which uh, can't be uh, communicated through words. And so, yeah, then there have been times where I've, I've explored that, but not as much lately. And actually, I heard that um, when you first started acting in your teens, um, it was a really kind of revelatory thing for you. And you kind of, it was a way to express emotions that you couldn't quite even verbalize. But I heard this description of theater in particular for you being this kind of devotional space, like, like almost mm-hmm. like a religious kind of, um, oh, the dog liked that. Um, <laughs> I was into it. River, hey, hey. River. So that's River and Skunk who are. Yeah, but you could probably go out and. Help. I can go and yeah, go and stroke like, now and I put him in here. <laughs> River! Zach, if you need a dog um mind, no, we, we have Russell Toby. Yeah. He's just he's just, no, next I just door. I'm just next door. So <laughs> he's really good with dogs. <laughs> he loves a dog. Love That's a dog. one of the things I love about Russell. Oh. Um anyway, so I heard that, that you describe theatre as this devotional kind of space, mm-hmm. which I'd never really thought about, and the repetitive nature of it almost being mm-hmm. like something quite religious or something. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about well, I mean, that? For, I just found it yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, if you obviously you trace the origins of theater, um, you you know you end up back at a a spiritual place on some level or another. You know, there's there is a there is a ritualistic aspect to the origins of theater that I think we uh, we are a part of. You know, when when we enter into the expression of that art form. Um, there's something so different from the process between doing theater and doing film and television. You know, film and television is about instinct. I think in many ways, it's about capturing something that will only ever exist once, uh, but preserving it forever, you know? And so to me, the process of film and television is about freedom and being as free as we can be to find a moment that might just be born in that instant and then never again, right? But theater is the opposite end of that spectrum, right? You show up and you start to, I liken it to, to water over stone, you know, and, and you, can, you can be there and watch the water washing on, uh, over the stone and, and nothing much happens, but give it enough time and you have the Grand Canyon. So the depth that you can actually um, achieve over time 
is uh, is is infinitely can be infinitely more profound, I think, but it requires one to sustain themselves through the eventual resistance and boredom that is going to present itself through the process. Because the more you do the same thing over and over and over again, the more your body embraces that experience, but also the more your ego and your consciousness and your mind resist it. So there are times when you're doing a long run of a play when the last thing you want to do is show up and and stand in the same place and say the same thing, and yet you do it. And, mm-hmm. and your experience of it is informed by people's um, reaction to it in real time. And so to me, there's something about that alchemy that is a part of the lineage of the spirituality of what theater was, you know, was the purpose it served all that time ago, um, and the purpose in some ways that it still serves now. Without getting lofty about it, I do think there's something devotional about it, and that that there's something. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a huge believer in the theater, and I've done a lot of revivals. Uh, a lot of my theater career is, is has been revivals, and. Um, and to me, there's something about the connection to the lineage of the people that were a part of the previous productions mm-hmm. that I'm bringing to my experience. And, and that's the same thing. It's like that connection and that, you know, creativity doesn't just uh, evaporate from the planet when someone dies, right? When, when, it, when a, a brilliant mind like Tennessee Williams uh, or Edward Albee leaves the planet, that creativity doesn't go with them. Uh, it finds other outlets and it lives on in their work. And so when we step into the the work of people like that, I believe that we're plugging into something that they experienced as uh, uh, as artists. And, uh, and that to me, there is something spiritual about that i don't know know i I completely agree with you and also talking about the lineage of of a production you played lewis in angels in america and then we're here with joe mantello who played the original lewis in angels america and i played joe pitt in another uh version at the national theater in london so there's this angels in america vibe going through this company and also we're working on a show which is pre-age new york where the play set at a time when the play was set. And we're sort of coming up with the same themes. I feel like Joe Pitt has become Patrick in, in American Horror Story. You know, I've left Harper and now my first boyfriend happens to be Lewis, <laughs> Joe Mantello, yeah, so, you know. That's so crazy. It's really, I never thought of that. Yes. Wow. So I kind of see this lineage yeah. just bleeding into this production as mm-hmm. well, strangely. Yeah. Well, Joe and I, Joe Mantello and I have a... Uh, a, a pretty incredible, both personal and creative professional history of, of dancing around one another. And he created the role of Lewis, which I then played. I then did a revival of The Glass Menagerie on Broadway in which I played um, Tom Wingfield. And then a few years later, he did a, another production of it on Broadway where he played Tom Wingfield. And he was directing you in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And the last job I did before I came to start filming this was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in LA. I mean, there's just so many little... And Boys in the Band. And guys, I love that. You guys, the Boys in the Band we did, yeah. Which was a... Net- yeah, he directed us in that, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy, really. There's no mistakes in that. That's what I mean. There's a kind of... Uh, 
there's a kind of, um, I don't know, cosmic perfection in all of those little, like there are no coincidences, right? There is, there's something to that. And there's something to the fact that the three of us are, you know, existing in these bodies at this time and relating to one another creatively and professionally and becoming friends. And I mean, I've known Joe for 20 years, you and I crossed paths once before in an airport mm -hmm. when you were like <laughs> going through security with Rocky and I was right behind you. We said hello because you were doing looking with my ex-boyfriend, Jonathan Groff, mm -hmm. and we have that connection as well. So, I mean, I think there, you know, that's the joy of what we do separate from all the esoteric kind of um, elevated um, psychological, spiritual stuff we're talking about. There's also just the kind of delicious smallness of the world and how we're all connected in one way or on another that, on that topic of like synchronicity and kind of things that are meant to be i heard that you did um what's it called that tv show where you go back into your ancestry oh uh, uh who do you, um, think, who you, you are? think you are who do you yeah. think you are so you did that yeah. and you found out that your kind of ancestor had said some quote that ended up oh, yeah. being like the line that was in star trek which your character in star trek says or something yeah my my really great freaky. Yeah, my great grandfather uh, was a union rep, essentially, and he wrote a letter to the home office of the national um, uh, chapter of the uh, of the union. And he closed the letter by saying, live long and prosper, which is Fox catchphrase 108 years ago or 108 years before I would get the role. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And that's what Spock always says, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, did you discover this after you played Spock? Yeah, I just discovered it. Uh, yeah, right, like two two years ago when I did the show. I love when I did. Who do you think you are? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com yeah, Can we talk quickly about Spock? Because um, I don't think Russell or I are necessarily sci-fi nerds. But um, it brought back researching this episode how much... Um, Leonard Nimoy meant to me as a kid because I think back then it was the kind of thing where whatever was on TV is what you watched and I remember watching it a lot with my brother you know we would sit and watch it together and he was such an amazing actor in that kind of withheld emotional state that Spock kind of embodied was just the most captivating thing to watch but I, I was seeing an interview that you did with him at the Hammer Museum um, online and he was talking about photography and I, I had no idea he was so like into visual arts himself so the original story, oh yeah yeah and then you had this real close friendship with him oh yeah we were incredibly close uh for the last decade of his life I mean again you know all these parallels, but, uh, but the, you know, my father who died when I was seven, um, was older when he had me and, uh, you know, was very close in age to Leonard who obviously yeah. we bear a, a striking physical resemblance. And he, 
you know, there, there was just a lot of intrinsic connection there with Leonard as a person. And he was so generous of spirit and we became so close, but he was a, a, a very um, accomplished photographer in his own right. But he and his wife, Susan, with whom I'm still incredibly close, uh, have a phenomenal contemporary art collection. Wow. And uh, she's on the board of the Hammer Museum mm. and travels all around the world. And, and they have a, a pretty mind blowing collection um, that, is just all over their house and you know i'm sure they have as much storage as you russell but um but they're uh they're really she's she's been you know i I, if i'm making a big decision on on a piece i always call susan really um she's your advisor she's 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 one of my personal people like who i look to and say like i should be half as lucky to have you know the kind of collection that that anywhere near the kind of collection that that they have that that she has. They they both when they married and they they married later in life, but art became a real passion for both of them, and they they really cultivated these great relationships, and they did it right. You know they learned they learned a lot and and taught each other a lot, and it became a real um, unity point for them in their relationship, their art collection. What have you learned from their art collection and for yourself going forward? If you're asking her advice every time, what is she sort of guiding you to do and how to choose well i've learned that it's an incredibly personal thing you know and and that as much as i can seek advice and guidance from other people who might have more experience than i do and certainly is the case with her there are many times where i just have to trust my response to something and my feeling about something and and she taught me that i mean there are pieces in her collection that are impressive but that i would never buy um, you know, and she's looked at pieces in, in my collection or things that I bought that she sort of doesn't respond to as much. But so, so I don't, it's not necessarily that I only buy the piece if she tells me to, mm. or if I, if somebody else tells me to, you know, she's one of a handful of people that I will consult. Russell, I have a question for you after we're done with this. <laughs> but, um, but there, but there is, um, but there's something about the discourse that's generated because art is so subjective that there's something about what it brings up in me through having the conversation. You know, we might end that conversation and she'll say, you have to buy that piece 100%, Mm. and I still might not buy it. Mm. Or, you know, conversely, she might say, I would never buy that piece, and I call, the, you know, and and pick it up right there. So it's more about what it brings up in me than it is about whether or not somebody tells me to do it or not. It's a sounding board, really. really It's it's a... Yeah, yeah, sounding board, right. Where are you finding art? Where are you looking? And do you have certain galleries that you respond to? Because the the work of uh, Izumi Kato was Periton Gallery. Did you... That's Periton, yeah. Did that then start a relationship with that gallery? And So, yeah, after I bought the Izumi Kato piece, then I had a relationship with a gallerist at uh, Periton, who's no longer there. He's moved on to another gallery. But through that relationship, he would send me previews of shows that they were having or what they were doing at different fairs and stuff. And uh, I I met another uh, artist that they represent called Jens Fang, who's a Swedish artist who does these really interesting paintings um, that are kind of collage. Collage is another mm. format that I never really thought that I would um, pursue, but I have a couple of pieces that are like collage and this mm. painting uh, is one of them. Another one is a photograph by an artist called Matthew Lips. And, uh, and then this artist, Zach Harris, who I met through that relationship at Periton, who does these amazing um, sort of wood panel carved paintings mm. that are three, like they have dimension to them. They're almost mm. like reliefs in certain parts. And they, they use mythology and astrology and another kind of sort of cosmic expression 
comes through his art, which I really uh, love. And uh, so that, and then Mark Selwyn is a gallery uh, in LA that I met through Susan. Um, she has a good relationship with him, works with him a lot. And uh, I bought my Matt Lips piece from Mark Selwyn. I bought a, an Alan Rupersberg piece from him as well. There's an artist called uh, Edward Bertinsky, who's a Canadian photographer who I became really enamored of. Uh, does these really large format, huge scale photographs, uh, many of which are about the impact of man on the planet and, and you know, sort of what these really staggering pieces. And I, and I, I sort of sought him out and through a friend of mine in California, I got to meet him and talk to him. And then he had two shows running concurrently in New York. And so I got to go to those shows and got to know Edward and bought one of his pieces. I met this guy actually out here in Fire Island in the hot tub that you were in last week. Excuse me? Uh, when, what? What hot tub was I in? You were in a hot tub. Remember when Mantello and Paul and I came down to see you? We, we saw you at that party at Charles's house. Well, yeah, I was on the beach and I met Mantello and his partner's friend. And then they went off. And then I hung out with someone else and ended up back at the house and then Mantello and his and Paul turned up at the house and I was there in the hot tub like hi guys yeah. at their friend's yeah. house and they just introduced Correct. me to it's Fire Island <laughs> that is That's the Fire essence Island. of Fire Island but in that very hot tub last year when I came to Fire Island which is the first time I'd ever been here um I met this this guy and we struck up a conversation and turns out he's an art advisor in LA and so we became friends and then He's now someone that I'm working with um, as well to kind of build my collection. And he's somebody as a sounding board that I'll always check with before I make a move. But, you know, during the uh, the Felix and the Freeze art fair um, that just happened this past year, there were like a couple of pieces that he was like, you have to buy these pieces. Um, and I did. And then there was a piece that I was in love with that he was like, you cannot buy this piece. And I did buy it, you know, because I loved it. What were, they, and, what and were it these then? Me. And what were these? And this also feels like a, a real dedication now. This feels like something that you are actively pursuing. Oh, yeah. You want to build yeah, yeah, a serious definitely. collection. Definitely. Yeah, one piece was an artist named uh, Elizabeth Yeager. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, I know Amazing her. work. Yeah. I've actually she, been to her studio in New York years Oh, you have? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she York, does these amazing um, sculptures. Yeah, uh, the sculptures. And, and, and I bought amazing. one of these. It's very little. It's like a little... You hang it on the wall and it looks just like a black, kind of a black monolithic little cube. But then you come around to the side of it and it's carved out and there's a tiny little person smoking a cigarette leaning up against the side of it. But it's only like this big. It's like, it's amazing. I love it. And then, um, and then this piece by this artist named Catherine Kuharek, who, you know, I just fell in love with viscerally. And we had this debate about, you know, he, and also he's now coming at it much more from, you know, you get into the conversations that are about investment, right? The mm -hmm. investment versus the emotional response. And so he's an advisor, right? He's, uh, he's, he's kind of coming into the conversation from a place of like wanting to make sure that, you know, he, he's asking specific questions, you know, what is the, what is, what, what public collections are the artists in? What, you know, where, and those are things that sometimes I think are important, but uh, in this case, I was like, I'm not, that's not why I'm buying it. I'm buying it because of what the piece says. The work mm. itself to me is technically beautiful um, and really evocative and visceral. And so I moved forward with that piece. But then they represent an artist called Wyatt Kahn, who's um, uh, an, a sort of abstract um, 
he's a, he's a really incredible he's great. um artist and i and he i does just the cut out these... canvases and then builds them back does, up. Yeah, there, so there's a collage element yes there's a collage, there's a collage element, element there. to it there's also a sculptural element to it i mean they're mm -hmm. all called paintings but they're certainly very three-dimensional and um and he uses like these images these recurrent themes in his work um and uh and i bought I have a work by uh, him i've got a work on oh, paper by him yep ah his works on paper are really interesting mm -hmm. i have a huge uh lead wrapped sculpture called bully a painting called bully that i have no room to hang at the moment so he's been generous enough to keep it in storage at his uh studio until i can figure out what to do with it <laughs> i did buy that it's happening zach see yeah, this is it. You have you're got, not getting you're using someone else's you. storage though that's, <laughs> that's, that's what i need to do you're cleverer this than me is the beginning. <laughs> you, you, you are actually officially of this talk up moment a collector because that means you're a collector i have more art than i have it. walls to yes. hang it on that's actually true good point thank We're you cheering here that validation we love this yeah. Materiality-wise, you, you've mentioned photography a lot, yeah. and yeah. whether that's something you have an affinity with growing up with your dad's yeah. photography skills, but then also the figure appears a lot, yeah. whether yeah. it be in the photography or the sculpture or, or yeah. the kind of a, a abstracted version of the figure. Are there things that you are vehemently avoiding that you're like, I do not want that, I do not like that, I don't want that in my house, or are there things that you recognize you're drawn to more than anything else what, what are the themes and the materials that you think are the priority for you when you look at work i can't say that there's one unifying um material or um or expression that 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 runs throughout my collection i mean i really it's 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 pretty disparate but in a good way like i think there's something about it it's cohesive i definitely feel like it's cohesive um, but I genuinely go after things that I like and what I like or what I respond to can be vastly different. Um, you know, I was walking down the street, uh, earlier this summer. Um, there's a, I live on a block in New York that has a number of galleries on it actually. And, uh, and I've never purchased anything from any of them. And I was walking down the street when I got back to New York from Los Angeles and I was stopped in my tracks by this painting that was hanging in this in this gallery. Like, I don't know why it's a, it's a figurative piece by an Indian artist. Um, it's essentially of a young boy sitting on top of a snail in, in meditation. And, and I, and I just immediately was like, Oh, I have to buy that. Like there was not even a question. I mean, I, I sent it to my friend who's, who's my sort of advisor. I was like, I think I'm going to buy this. And he was like, oh, okay, like, sure. You know, there's no, it was, it was just like, I have to have that. That's me. And it's hanging above my bed. Um, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not in conversation with any other, the only other pieces that I have in my bedroom are, a, um, a Ross Blechner painting, uh, that I got a few years ago and, uh, a, a needlepoint work by this Icelandic artist named Loji Hodukelsen. I mean, God help me with the Icelandic pronunciation, but, uh, I was in Iceland. I was in Reykjavik. I went into this gallery, this show was hanging of this artist that was doing needlepoint work. It was amazing. It was so fascinating to me. Uh, the whole show was sold out and I, you know, started a conversation with the gallerist and told her that I really responded to the work and that got back to the artist who found it really interesting that I was interested in his work and, and basically made a piece for me and, and I oh, you wow. know, bought it. So that's in my bedroom, but like those three pieces have no relationship to one another in, mm -hmm. in any way, aesthetically or otherwise, but they create the space that is my bedroom, you know? And so, yeah. And how, and how brilliant that you've got these kind of almost mementos of 
places you've visited or experiences yeah. you've had or feelings you've had, you know, that are material, that are actually, yeah. and I guess as you grow as a person as well, the art can, your relationship to the art can change too. It's really That's right. I think it will, like, you know, I hope. If you authentically collect as well, I've always said this, that it feels like a diary. Like I can walk around my house and I'm like, oh, that was when I was doing that job. That's when I felt like that. That's when I met that person. I was at that point in my life and I acquired that. They become a self-portrait in some ways. Your collection can reflect who you are. Yeah, I think mine, I think mine certainly does that. I do like to collect things from different places that I go. Not always pieces of art, but certainly ephemera or... I like like a lot of my style um, in design is built around places that I've been and things that I've acquired when I've been there. Um, and I also think that like to acknowledge that collecting art is something that I want moving forward. I think I have an eye now toward diversifying a little bit and like, like finding emerging artists that speak not only to me aesthetically, but also to a moment in the social fabric of the time that we're living in. And that's yes. something that I think is indicative of me becoming a little bit more of an actual, like, you know, there are a couple of artists that I'm, that I'm interested in because of what they're saying, um, you know, culturally and societally and uh, politically. Um, and I think that's also a sign that my collection's moving in a direction of, of, you know, hopefully, some seriousness right i want to i want to support those artists i want to give like i i really do see that part of being a collector is really about amplifying the voices of artists and what they have to say and so that's that's a place that i'm in right now i'm in the process of acquiring a piece this weekend actually um from an artist that i met in person and got to go to her studio and learn about her process and you know, what her experience is. And uh, she's a trans artist and she's really talented and she's just now emerging. Um, she just had a show at the at Valmetter in uh, LA that just opened mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, and because I got to meet her through friends and spent an evening with her in her studio and like looked around not only at the work that she was putting together to ship to LA for the show, but, um, but also to get to know her and talk to her and, and, spend a night socially with her in her studio. It was mm. so amazing. And I left being like, God, I really want to support what she's doing, you know, and, yes. and where she is in her process. And what's, and so, what's her name? Her name's Nash Glynn. Nash Glynn. I love Great. Nash's work. She's got a, yeah. she's got a big uh, support network from like, there's a, there's a movement of queer artists, New York queer artists like Daron Langberg, for example, is really yeah. good friends with Nash. They have a really yeah. good kind of critical relationship with each other mm -hmm. as well as a friendship. And yeah. do you, I guess, do you feel like you're looking for more of affinity with queer art now? Um, maybe. I've been in conversation with my friend who's been sort of advising me about about more queer artists. Um, Paul Sapoya is an artist that I'm uh, a photographer that I'm really uh, keen on and interested in. Um, Wolfgang Tillmans is a real, like, I'm really into that stuff. Mm. Um he was just out on Fire Island last week. I heard he's got a house ripples. here. Oh, he yeah. does. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely open to it. Uh, but I don't feel like I don't feel like there's one guiding principle that I have. Like, oh, I have to invest in queer artists. I want to invest in artists who are saying something. That's for sure. I think that's become more uh, clear for me. It's become clearer for me recently. 
what they're saying, I'm not sure I've figured out that, that it needs to be something specific for me to support it, but, but that they're saying something about their experience and about their perspective and how their work is a reflection of that back at the viewer is something that I'd love to be able to talk about when I have people to my house and I'm showing them what I bought. Amazing. Mm. Well, also what Rob mentioned in in the uh, introduction about you coming out at uh, a uh, kind of informative age for me and Rob and at a point in your career when maybe coming out, and this was 2011 uh, publicly, you would have been advised against because I know my experience, you know, I'm 40 now when I when I was, you know, out and gay and proud with all my projects there was a certain resistance within the business from certain people saying whoa 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 stop Mm. being as gay as you are don't be Mm. (laughs) as out as you are but what you did and and what you're saying about these artists and supporting them is that through your kind of coming out at a time when and it was inspired by uh, a a tragic queer story that hit the headlines Mm -hmm. which i'm sure you can talk about but you made a difference uh Mm by doing that and that was what you wanted to do and it did make mm. a difference and them sort of things are incredibly important for you know all creativity it's interesting i mean it's it's only uh, 11 years ago but it feels like we live in such a different time now in terms of young people um integrating their authentic identity with what what society expects of them it's just it's a different so much has changed so radically in such a short period of time for the better um but yeah my my coming out you know it was always very important because i was out in my life i just hadn't come out publicly and i had finally arrived at a place in my career where there was enough public interest in who i am as a person that i felt like it warranted acknowledgement particularly in the context of the suicide of a young teenager uh, called Jamie Rodemeyer. Essentially in 2010, when I was doing Angels in America, it was the height of the It Gets Better movement where people were making videos and posting them to YouTube, a lot of openly gay, queer people, LGBT allies and representatives. And I made an It Gets Better video when I did Angels in America, but I hadn't yet come out publicly. So my video was very kind of like, I support you. and. You know, I sort of rambled off the names of a number of young people who had taken their own lives because of bullying and said something like, uh, I stand with the chorus of voices who support you. I mean, it was basically, you know, this equivocating, like I I wasn't I wasn't saying the truth, but I was, you know, uh, availing myself as an ally. But I didn't take the opportunity of doing Angels of America to actually come out publicly officially. And then um, the following year. I read the story about Jamie Rodemeyer, uh, who took his own life and who had made an It Gets Better video uh, only a few months before. And the hypocrisy of that for me was too much to uh, bear. And so I made a decision to come out and the way that I circumnavigated any potential resistance or pushback from anybody who advises me in my career was that I just didn't tell them. I didn't tell my publicist. I didn't tell my agents. I didn't tell my manager. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my boyfriend. I didn't tell anybody. Um, and I did an interview with New York Magazine um, that was associated with this movie that I had coming out, which was the first movie that I had produced. Um, and I used that as the opportunity to come out. And it wasn't until after I gave the interview that I then told everybody that I had done it. So, um, so I was able to 
do it on my own terms. And I was able to have an experience that I felt like was authentically representative of who I am and the way I want to do things. And I didn't pollute the experience or muddy the waters by, uh, by opening it up to any kind of um, advice from anybody. Well, I'm sure the ripple effect of all that, and it has been noticed, was incredibly important for you to have done that for many people. Mm. I think it gives so many people agency as well to be themselves. And it doesn't even, you know, even if they're not LGBT or, you know, w whatever it may be, but just for people to like express themselves truly and how powerful that is. Because I really believe that the more we all are who we are, um, the world benefits in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's always these other structures trying to mm -hmm. suppress it the whole time. And yes, the world has changed so much, but I also think, you know, in moments like now, always we're going to need, people to stand up and be themselves and speak up and i don't know i Role just models, think it's possibility models yeah exactly mm -hmm. and i remember very clearly your example and even i think you had a website and you wrote a letter and mm -hmm. um i remember being really excited at the time because mm -hmm. it it did feel incredibly significant in the uk particularly mm -hmm. nice. i think heroes had been so Huge. popular mm -hmm. and um and you were somebody that a lot of us sort of recognized. Do you know mm. what I mean? So it did mean a lot. And That's um, nice to hear. Thanks. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I, I only have my own experience of it. And, and it's funny now looking back on it a decade later, you know, it's easy to, I think, diminish the impact of a decision like that as it, as it fits into a broader context of a life, right, which has now evolved a decade beyond that moment. And when our culture has evolved as well uh, over the course of this decade and, you know, the, what was the, the, the gay sort of journey has now given way to other journeys. Right. And the trans right. journey has become something that I think has deservedly become much more integrated in our awareness, in our acceptance, yes. in our, in our advocacy. And that needs to continue, you know, that that's where we all need to kind of channel our energies, right? Like I represent mm -hmm. the G in LGBTQ plus LGBT, LGBTQ, who doesn't stumble on it? LGBTQIA, <laughs> whatever you want to say, but I represent one of those letters. But there are, you know, an infinite number of other experiences that we all need to be accountable to. Um, yes. And so I think that's the, that's the thing is like, how do we stay a part of the conversation? And how do we channel our energy? Yes, I, I, I'm grateful that I was able to have an experience that freed me gave me the opportunity to live authentically and have uh, uh, you know, a, a genuine experience of who I am and continue working and maybe uh, inspired somebody else in the world or young people or, you know, but now what, and where do we go now and where, who needs our help now? Um, and, and how can all of us rally around those that are um, the most vulnerable um, among us? And I think that's the question to ask as we continue to grow. Agree. Amazing. Well, before we get onto our final questions, are there any artists that are living, contemporary artists that you would love to meet or dream artworks that you would love to, or studio visits that you would mm. love to experience? Because it feels like this, this, this connection between meeting the artist and then having the work and that the alchemy of that connection kind of gives right. an aura to everything that you have in your collection. Right. Yeah. That's a, a good question. I don't know. That's a tough one for me because I feel like so many of my relationships, I didn't foresee them. I didn't anticipate them. I never imagined that I'd be sitting at that coffee table in Hong Kong and then fall in love with this artist who I'd get <laughs> to meet, you know, a year and a half later. So I don't know how to answer it. I mean, um, 
because I also think I have a lot to learn. And that's something that I feel like, you know, there are people who I haven't met. Like I never would have anticipated like spending a night with Nash and learning where she's coming from. And so I don't know. I mean, they're the big, they're the heavy hitters. Like I, I had the great pleasure of spending a Christmas party in Cindy Sherman's uh, studio and getting a tour and meeting her and like walking all around. Really? And that was amazing. Yeah. A couple of years ago. Um, wow. And that in was LA or New York? In New York. Right. And I just went to her. Um, she had a, a show at Hazard Worth recently that I got to go see. And so that kind of connection, I you know, was really incredible. Um, and uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of that's that, that one stumps me. I'll have to I'll have to come back to you on that one. Did it make you want to get a Cindy Sherman photograph after meeting her? Uh, I've always loved her. When I was in high school, I was doing a um, I was in an arts a summer arts program where my major was acting, but my minor was creative writing. And one of our assignments was to go to the library and take out a photo book and write something in the corresponded to a photo. And so I found a, a Cindy Sherman film stills compilation. Um, and I, and I wrote uh, this, this really bad poem about one of the film stills. And so I've always been enamored of Cindy Sherman. And, Can you and- remember the poem, Quinny? Oh no, I can't. It's in my journal. In my, if you come visit me at my apartment with the watercolor that you've bashed out. Yeah, with the watercolor. (laughs) (laughs) Is poetry something you do a lot of? Because I've always, I've noticed hearing you speak in other interviews and things, you really like language and you Mm. really like words. And I guess Mm. that also comes from reading scripts and what Mm -hmm. have you. But Mm. is is poetry a big part of your life? Again, not anymore. I would say it used to be more so a part of my expression. I've gotten a little, um, my relationship to writing in general is something that I have, it's been a bit of a, a challenge in some ways. Like I feel a little stuck. Like I don't know exactly where to go with it. Although I think my relationship to words is something that I'd like to explore more in that way. So I I don't know, but it is, it's just been the last handful of years have not been as productive on the writing front as I think they could be, or I'd like them to be. And particularly when I have, uh, you know, friends who are writing books and scripts and movies and then directing them. And there's a little part of me that feels like I experienced my success in relationship to a lot of my friends um, on the earlier side, like in my late twenties, early thirties. Right. Um, and, and, and then, and then I looked around and I've seen, you know, a lot of my friends who were maybe struggling then have now kind of in some ways lapped me, right. Cause not only have they achieved success, but then they've done something very specific and, uh, tangible with that success. I started my production company and have, you know, films and projects that I can show for it, but they're not things that I wrote or directed. And so writing and directing is something that I'm really open to i just need to kind of figure out where it wants to take me and what are the stories that i want to tell or feel that i need to tell that's a tough that's a tough question there's an artist story there for you Mm. somewhere it could be it could be you playing the artist i would love that i think you'd be really good you have such a deep voice as well it's very specific your voice Mm. the kind of um timbre of it i could imagine it being a really great like artist character or something i'm sure you you and russell should um have a think about that all right russ got this we got this. Toby time. Toby time. Mainly and because, <laughs> mainly because loads of art films are really bad. Uh, like there's been very few really great art films. Mm, I right. like the one about Frida Kahlo, but there aren't really that many really. What good about art um? What about the Never Look Gears. Away? Come on. Oh yeah, that was. Never good. Look Away is like one of the, like to me one of the best. Um, yeah, Basquiat was good. Yeah, you're right though. It's true. 
It was, it was mainly because whenever you have art in a film, normally the art looks terrible yeah. because it's just not very good. Yeah. And the sets are really bad. Yeah. And like that, that element of it is quite bad. No doubt. I vaguely, I kind of, yeah, anyway, I won't go there. It'd be quite um, good to play like a, a, a collector couple in something, me and you, oof. that are like collecting That'd be art. Fun. But then, then it goes a bit kind of haywire or dark or something happens where we kind of have yeah. like an artist over for a dinner and then somebody gets killed or something. It'd be it like an amazing dark. next American horror season, babe. There we go. <laughs> Float it up to Ryan. Let's see what we can get going here. Or it's like a Jeffrey Dahmer but art collecting. Oh my god, I just watched the entire series of Dahmer. Me over too. Three I days. just think captivatingly just just so disturbing so well done TV. So, yeah. so well done and i yeah. think it's so genius the comment on society yeah and the time the era yeah. and even now you know like the whole thing and yeah. about women and misogyny mm-hmm. and racism and it's the most extraordinary tv show i almost turned it off because i can't it's hard. handle it's really hard you know the darkness well, it's triggering and i was like i oh, find it I triggering it. because as gay men or gay people, queer mm. people, we put ourselves in vulnerable. I'm sure everybody does on hookups. Everybody, young people, put themselves in vulnerable positions for sex. Yeah. At times, mm-hmm. you find yourself yeah. somewhere where you would never have gone, and you're there, yeah. and there's a voice yeah. in your head goes, "This isn't right." And we've all been there. And then I watched yeah. Dharma, yeah. and I'm like, "That could have been any of us at any yeah, point." Yeah, yeah. These yeah. are just really unlucky guys. But that we've all, everybody puts themselves at some point in a position of that, of trust. And you know, Russ, trust. we were talking about that grinder killer in England and they, they made that Sheridan Smith uh, four oh, the Dagnum TV series about it. Oh, the Dagnum murderer guy, yeah. yeah. Stephen Paul. Stephen somebody. Stephen Paul, And yeah. yeah, and that was actually, it's really similar because the, the way that the police kind of respond to mm. the idea of anything of that. gay, yeah. that they're kind of polite about it. There was a, like, I didn't even oh, know I, re- I, I didn't even know yeah, there was a yeah, grinder yeah. killer, really. How how many yeah, people did he in kill? The UK, four or five. Wow. Was, yeah, and he drugged yeah, them. It was dark. And overdrugged Quite similar them. actually. Yeah, yeah. And the weird thing is the police response was so minimal because they were almost sort of they're almost it's to do with homophobia. They're gay, but they're kind men. of polite about it, mm. but they just don't want to think about it. So right. they end up not investigating wow. it. It's just the weirdest it's it's really dark, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it made me think how it is an ongoing concern. Obviously, mm-hmm. these things aren't just in the past, and that's what I think so genius about that show. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Anyway. Well, so, final question. Great note to end on. Oh no, wait, we have more questions. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's like yay. <laughs> if you could do an art heist, then so we spoke about like ended up at Cindy Sherman's house. If you could do an art heist, have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? Um, I think it would be an Egon Chile. Oh, um, of some kind. Just because Izuma Gato has a sort of a little bit. It's there's something about that work that is like timeless, Mm -hmm. um, plugged into something so much bigger than who he was and when he lived. There's something really sexy about it to me. There's something like like um, I don't know. Just always really responded to that work a lot so i would say that Mm. probably elongated body shape yeah just like there's something haunting about it but there's something really again yeah 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 do you know marlena dumas work god it sounds familiar but i'd have to see it you should look it up she's a dutch uh painter and she does marlena dumas yeah 
There's actually a film um, on the Tate's website of Russell talking about her work. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah. this. I swear to God. You don't need to watch Russ? that, though. There is, yeah. It's terrible. It's, yeah, it's not terrible, he's going to say. It, <laughs> it was a few years ago. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. Do you own her? I mean. No, I wish. I think it's she's like millions, millions probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, like, I don't know. What do you talk about? It's a lot of yeah. She's she's like art history. <laughs> yeah. The new the new level that Russ is at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's getting not not. We don't, we don't have to he's wait much longer. Our uh, next season of American Horror, Horror, Horror Story together. Yeah. <laughs> Zachary, what's it been like working with Russell? Oh, in American Horror absolute Story? dream, and I'm not just saying that. I Aww. have had such a great time. Russell's laugh. His, his desire to laugh and his ability to make me laugh mm-hmm. are three of the greatest gifts of this season of American Horror Story. Oh, Quinny. Well, same. For sure. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed I just that. love the fact you're known as Quinny. Uh, um, I've never so been known have... as Quinny before I met Russell Toby, by the way. <laughs> now you are. He coined oh, well, yeah, yeah, gonna, now we're gonna, I'm going to get a T-shirt made. If I ever get to I'm meet you Quinny. in person, it'll be I'm like, I'm with Quinny. Quinny. Yeah. <laughs> With Quinny. I love, love that. Uh, the other question is, what is your favorite color? Blue. Navy blue. I wear a lot of navy blue. Like I, 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 navy, I wear navy blue the way a lot of New Yorkers wear black. So I just am like one notch away from the you norm. You just like to be a bit different. Just a you? little bit different, but close enough that you can't necessarily tell unless you're actually paying attention. <laughs> uh, final question what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to let's say we normally ask people what comes to their art we can ask you that but also when it comes to your art collection i think go with your gut i mean i think it really does come down to that i think it's really um it's really about trust trusting that if i'm going to be in this situation that the thing that i invest in both financially and emotionally has to be something that is an accurate reflection of who I am at that given time and is something that I can live with and look at and uh, and form a relationship with over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's sort of the thing that I've learned both from other people and, and, and observing other people and from what other people have told me, but also through my own process and my own experience as well. Have you ever had a really, like a moment that you've just kind of stopped and and artworks made you feel incredibly emotional. The Helma Off Clint show at the Guggenheim was something that I was really overwhelmed by, you know, in a way that was mm. pretty staggering. Just the the space, reading about her, learning about her, um, knowing that she made those works to eventually be displayed in a in a in a round space, and like that, you know, just all of the things that 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 show represented um that was her intentions so the guggenheim yeah, was kind of she, perfect but she had no but idea the guggenheim where. didn't exist she had no idea where oh, she created them to be displayed in uh, you know she she was she was a part of this movement and i forget what it was called now I, i'll have to go back and refresh my memory it was like a spiritualist, a spiritualist like, kind of movement yeah, she, that she was yeah. she was actively serving something bigger than herself um, and she was serving visions that came to her in her dreams. And she had this this collection of people that she spent time with and collaborated with and worked with. And they talked about these philosophies and these thoughts and these ideas. And part of it was that she was serving, um, I think it was a spherical temple is what 
she may have referred mm. it to it as. And then oh you know, to have that show at the Guggenheim, to learn that and to ascend up the ramps of the Guggenheim to see all those works that were so beautiful and so immediate. Like they were so of, and I know that show had that impact on a lot of people that I know. Um, but that was something where I was kind of like, I was a little bit stunned by the experience and by what it um, it represented. Um, They're incredibly charged works, and I think mm. she was also a mystic. And there is this yeah. element of mystical. That she takes the spirituality to abstraction in a way yeah. that I don't really, I've never really seen. And it goes to. back it's to what we were talking about before, which is like you know yeah. the, um, you know the the kind of lineage of something, and like how how the intention of an artist hundreds of years ago can resonate, you know, without any separation to a contemporary audience. And like, you know, we're a part of something that, that those artists like Egon Chalet or, or Helmoth Clint were, um, you know, were creating. So that's something, I mean, there's been, there's certainly been a few of those. Um, I went to a Peter Hujar photo exhibit, um, oh, that was amazing and at so the Morgan library and, yeah at the morgan library yeah, exactly I, that's yeah, well yeah. i had the same experience um that was really incredible um and really i have a work with him oh you do photograph by hoosier yeah that's you, amazing. Need to, you need to get hoosier I'd yeah yeah yeah, yeah i'm into that i'm into that um well i look forward to you know i'm coming to london so i'll be uh i'll be in oh yeah to talk work, about so what you're doing on. in london then so everyone listening by the time thank this comes you out, the i didn't American i didn't Horace want to shamelessly i didn't want to shamelessly <laughs> plug my thing but london? you know we are here really i've wanted to live in london for ages and i'm coming there to do a play in the west end called the best of enemies which uh starts performances at the null coward on november 16th and runs through the middle of february so please come find me there and I'm going to definitely well, find you both when I'm there. I'm coming with my I'm with Quinny t-shirt. <laughs> All the merch. And we're doing a photo shoot. And yeah, it's going on. The you'll score You'll score many brownie attitude. points if you actually Magazine. show up with that. Uh, oh, but no, amazing. I'm really excited to be in London. And I'm really excited to see you guys there. And Russ, to see your collection and talk about, about it when I get to come. 100% and we're going to do some galleries and you know, introduce you to some cool artists there Great. so there's a lot going Great. on yeah. you have to come down to Margate Absolutely. if you can escape come down yeah. to Margate I've, I've heard all about, about it I know it I'm all over it you have heard all of that I'm all over it yeah um, and uh, and Russ before you leave New York we, you have to come to my house in the next couple 100%. weeks yeah okay. I can't wait Great. Can't wait. Well, thank you so this much. This has been Zach. amazing. We love you. My you. pleasure. The great joy of this is that I get to turn off my computer and then open my door, and then Russell and I are going to go to a barbecue. That's right. He's going to be your dog minder. That's right. He needs some minding right now, poor thing. Um, so, for everyone listening, Zach is not on Instagram, so you won't be able to follow him um, because he's not on Instagram. Not anymore. No, love that. Respect that. Shut that door. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're free. You're free. Truly. But we are on Instagram, so please go yeah. to actualart and we're so very we much So we will post there. images of all these artworks and different artists. There's been quite a few people we've never spoken about in today's episode. Yes. Good one, Zach. You're Great. introducing people to new art. And yeah, we'll be back very soon. Thanks for Thanks, listening. Zach. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com